As we were there in worship, I felt like the Lord just dropped Isaiah 57, verse 15 in my heart. And I want to just, I just want to make a, a comment or two out of this passage. And then we'll wrap up the, uh, the series that we've been doing on pursuit and encountered. But Isaiah 57, 15, it's, it's such a rich uh, passage. You know, uh, let me just read it. Um, the Lord says this. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. This is one of the most clear passages on what has to be in place for the Lord to release a, a spiritual revival. And, and the, the thing that he emphasizes here is that humility must be a hallmark of the people of God. The Lord is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he draws near to the humble, but he is repelled by human arrogance. Another verse, I'll just quote it to you, Ephesians 2.22, he says he's building us together as a dwelling place for God in the spirit. And the, the point that I want to connect to this verse in Isaiah 57 is the Lord wants to dwell among us, his people. We've gotten really confused about what we think the kingdom of God is about. Somehow we've, we've diminished it to showing up to a service for two hours on Sunday morning, put a little tip in the offering, and that's the kingdom. And I'm just telling you, that is not the kingdom of God. This is one opportunity for us to come together and extol and worship the beauty of holiness, to worship the Lord together as a corporate family and to hear the word of God. But the kingdom is far greater than any of our church services. In fact, it's far greater than any of our churches. It's this all-encompassing rule and reign of, of Jesus Christ. And what he desires is to have a people in the earth with whom he can dwell and manifestation. And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road when you start talking about revival and breakthrough and you start talking about the activity of God in the earth. There's sort of this question that ends up hanging in the air like, how far are you willing to go? How far are you willing to go with God? And, and I felt like the Lord was whispering this passage to me this morning because there is a requirement of humility that is far grander than any of our minds realize. And we honestly can't humble ourselves enough. The contrite ones, the, 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 the holy and lofty one, he dwells in a high place with him who is the lowest. Think that through for a minute. The high and lofty one, he says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. That word contrite, it literally means crushed into dust. And, and I felt like the Lord was just whispering to me about a condition that some of us have, and I know it's in my own heart, and I'm just confessing now. 
that there's a place where we get to in a humility. You know, we, we humble ourselves and we sort of keep score. I humbled myself there. I humbled myself there. I humbled myself there. It's time for someone else to humble themselves. Because, you know, I've, I've done at least three big humbles, and I'm looking around, and no one else seems to be as humble as me. Think it through for a minute. We play games with this thing. Well, I'll humble myself if they'll humble themselves. I'll go low if they go low. And the, the question is, is that even humility? And is that what you're actually looking for in this transformation called being pressed into Christ, conformed to his image? Because God is after a bride that is being conformed to the image of Christ that will ultimately look like his son. And his son made himself of no reputation and took the form of a bondservant and humbled himself even to the point of death, even the death of a cross. And there is a place in humility, beloved, that I just don't know if we really even understand it. And then I just wonder if we're even willing to go there. And I would, just I would just propose this, that if, if you're keeping score of your humility tally, you don't really know what humility is. Because humility is a recognition that you are nothing, you have nothing, and you can do nothing without Jesus Christ. You have nothing to offer without him. And without his grace, you can't live, move, or do anything because it's all in him that we live and move and have our being. It's all in him that apart from him, we can do nothing, that the branch cannot live apart from the vine or it will dry up and die. And so humility is the full recognition of that and the embodiment of it. You know what humility never does? Demand its own rights. It never believes it's entitled to anything because someone who's actually humble understands this point that anything you get that's better than eternal hell is an absolute blessing from God. Yeah. And I just, you know, I'm just, I'm just overcome because I'm just wondering are we really ready to go where God wants to take us? Are we really ready to go there to where self is nothing and Jesus is everything, to where love consumes us and we just live for the betterment of other people instead of always looking out for our own preferences? He dwells in the high place with the one who is the most broken. And that is, that is not music to American ears, but it's absolutely beauty in the kingdom of God. If you can find a people who quit trying to get everything for themselves, who quit going after their own preferences, their own platforms, their own popularities, and actually live with an ambition that's all for the glory of Jesus, that's the house that God will dwell in.
And here's what I believe. I don't think any of us, I don't think we want God just to visit us once and then just move on. I think we want him to dwell among us, which is what he says he'll do. He's building us together as a dwelling place for God in the spirit. I just wonder what the church that's given to humility and love really looks like in the earth. And then I further wonder what it's like when you bring in an unsaved person into a completely selfless, love-filled environment. Because that unsaved person will sense something is way different here than any of the other environments I've ever been in. And beloved, I believe this is where the Lord wants to take us as a spiritual family. I know it's where he wants to take the church, but, but I, I, you know, I can't speak for all the other places, but I can speak for us. Will we humble ourselves to the point that God will dwell in our midst? Because it is the critical issue And I would just even invite you this morning to ask the Lord to search your heart and show you any areas where you might be keeping score. Because that's what we do. Well, I gave this away and that away, and I tell you, it's my time for my thing for my God. I mean, that's just not (laughs) what Jesus died for. I'm real happy. I know you're real quiet. Let's just pray. Let's just pray. Let's just ask the Holy Spirit right now to search our hearts. Are you willing to do this for a moment? I don't want church as usual, gang. I hope you don't. Can we just search, allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts right now to root out of us areas of arrogance and pride, preference, self-seeking, self-preserving, self-defending, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, right now I ask that you turn the spotlight of your presence on in each of our hearts and for every heart that's willing that you'd show us areas where we've exalted self and prioritized self instead of loving and humbling self before Jesus. Lord, show us where in our homes, in our families, with our children, with our spouse, with our parents, with our friends, in our workplace, show us areas where we've continued to look out for number one, and number one is self instead of Jesus. And would you you blow across this room and blow across our entire spiritual family that we would find ourselves laid out at the foot of the cross, really laid down before Jesus, really poured out that we wouldn't be a people going through the motions, but we'd be a people so taken with Jesus and his will and desires that we would be completely transformed and changed. So come, Holy Spirit, I thank you for your conviction. I thank you for pure conviction, bring to us your kingdom, that your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives and in our spiritual family in the name of Jesus. Everybody said amen, amen, and amen. Well, you won't find that in the church growth manual.
but I just don't really care, to be quite honest. I just want Jesus to be glorified, and I want to be a faithful messenger to the things he puts in my heart, and so that's what we're going to do. And that actual, that little introduction goes really, really well with the rest of the message today, and and so we're going to wrap this message up on pursued and encountered this the series that Jeff and I have been doing. And, you know, we've, took, we've taken a look at God from so many different angles and different encounters he's had with different people in the scripture. And, and everything, every time we take another look, you always come back with the, the absolute clarity that God is after his people and he wants to encounter us and he wants to transform us. He wants to reveal himself and he wants to encounter us and then transform us and, and make us more like him. And, and, and it's just beautiful the way the Lord can continues to interact with us. And so it's, a, it's an education for us and an encouragement that God wants to interact with us now. And he wants to be intimate with us. And, and so today we're going to look at Job. Glory to God. When, I've preached on Job probably a dozen times, you know, in different settings, maybe more. And I just, you just never hear anybody when I go, we're going to preach on Job. Glory! never get that response. But Job is such a powerful book of the Bible, and it's one we barely understand. I said that clearly. It's one we barely understand. We don't even get what's going on in that book. And so today, I hope I can break it down for you a little bit. But here's the point of us looking at the way that God deals with Job. It's not for us to find out how God will deal with us. It's actually for us to just stare at God. I just want to stare at God this morning. You know, we've kind of lost the art in the church of looking with long hours and loving eyes looking at the creator and just staring at him. Because what we tend to do is we look at God to figure out what's God going to do and what does he want me to do. And we come to God so often going, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Tell me what to do. I'll do do whatever you want me to do, God. I'll do whatever. If your child jumped on your lap and said, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? You'd be like, we're going to the psychologist right now. Stop that. I I just want you here. I just want you on my lap. I just want to be with you. What are you, what are you doing? Tell me what to do. I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll die. I mean, there's moments for that. But can you imagine if your kid, every time they talked to you, was begging you for their purpose, for direction, for what they're supposed to do right now, or making pledges of like self-sacrifice every single moment? See, what's supposed to happen is we're supposed to stare at God, find out who he is, and allow the wonder of him to instruct us in such a way that we're just transformed. He is so potent that if we stare at him, it will transform us. Paul was really clear about that, that if we, if we stare at him, we will be transformed even from glory to glory to glory. He'll continue to transform how we think, how we feel, how we act just by his knowledge, just by seeing him, just by his visage. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at God today. And so it begs the question, when was the last time you sat back and you just looked at God? 
When was the last time you just thought, I just want to look at you. I want to think about what the Bible says about you. I want to stare at your face. I want to consider that your face shines brighter than the sun in its strength, Jesus. I want, to, I want to stare into the eyes of fire. I want to see your head and hair that's white as wool. I want to look at you. Father, I want to look at you on the throne. You're like a jasper and a sardius stone. From your very being proceeds thunders and lightnings and voices and sounds and music and aroma and beauty and wonder like I've never seen. I just want to stare at you, God. Somebody goes, man, brother, could you give me something more practical? I am giving you something practical. Because you can't go do Christianity as if it's some sort of rule book that you follow if you are not intimately acquainted with the God of Christianity. Guys, we get so utilitarian. I got to go do something for God. Can you just look at him for a minute? Can you just look at his face for a moment? You just slow down and look into his eyes and allow who he is to wash over you. And then you think about him, and he's so kind. He's so patient. He's so loving. He's so tender. He's so humble. He's so generous. And just the, who he is begins to wash over you. And you know what? You start going, I'm not like you, but I want to be. Change me just glimpsing at him. Well, that's what we're going to try to do today. So the central facet of our relationship is our knowledge of God. It's the way that we view God. When I say knowledge of God, it's how we think about him, how we view him. That's the central facet of our relationship with him. And so what we believe about God determines everything about us. Think that through for a moment. What you think about God determines everything about your life. If you think God is mostly angry, mostly perturbed with you and disappointed, you will act in a certain way. If you think that God is, is different than what he's like, it will impact you and, and cause your actions to, to represent what you actually think about God. A.W. Tozer said it this way, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. Because it determines the total trajectory of your life. If you think God is mostly angry, you will walk around in shame, cowering from him most of the time. If you recognize what the scripture says, that in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures evermore, that he's actually mostly glad and mostly pleased, you will have a difference in the way that you perceive reality. So what you think about God determines everything about you. And the biggest challenge that modern Christians that we experience right now is that we've embraced such a low view of God. We've made him almost altogether different than what he really is. And so we have, we've lost our reverence. We've lost our confidence. We've lost our perspective. We've kind of made God like this guy that's maybe like eight feet tall. He's got more muscles than most people and he could possibly get it done if, if we ask him a whole lot, would you please help? We've made him like a superhero or something instead of the uncreated God who is from everlasting to everlasting, 
the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose very name is holy, who is love itself. We, we've completely misunderstood him, and so because of that, we've lost our reverence for him. He's a consuming fire, and the very fire of his nature is a fire that burns in absolute mercy and love and in judgment and wrath all at the same time. God has multiple facets, and none of them are in contradiction. All of who he is is all consistent and without contradiction. The one who is love is wrath. The one who is pleasure and joy is judgment and correction and instruction. He's all of those together. Do you know who he is? Have you stared at him a bit? Our problem is we've got such a low view of him, we've misunderstood him, and then we view life through a certain lens that is not actually reality. We're distant from reality because ultimately we're distant from the knowledge of God. See, the further you get away from God, the further you lack meaning. Because he is the center of all meaning. He's the center, he's the, he's the center of all existence. All reality emanates from him, right? So the further you get away from him, the less tuned into reality you really are. And a sad state is that much of the church, we sort of just live on the fringes. We're not, we're not swimming in the depths of the knowledge of God. We're like, you know, we're like the guys at the pool. They kind of lay out there under the umbrella, and it's nice and comfortable. They might stick a toe in every now and again. But man, there's a whole nother crew, and they're all in the deep end just enjoying the wonder of that place. And beloved, there is a depth in God that's available to the church that we've barely even touched. It's not just for pastors and preachers. It's not for theologians. It's not just for the intercessors. It's for the body. He is inviting us into the depths of who he is because he wants intimacy with every single one of us at the highest level. If we could just get the church to believe that there, there are no special people in the kingdom. There's just all of us who are broken, fallen, and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And he's invited us all into his heart equally. Oh, my God. How the church would excel if she would fall deep in love with him and go deep into the knowledge of who he is. And so we've, in, we've, we've imagined him in a way that's altogether inferior to how he actually is. And then the Lord, he actually speaks about this in the scripture because like with the children of Israel, they ended up making a God in their own image instead of being people who understood themselves as being made in the image and likeness of God. And the sinful condition of the human state is we always try to change places with God. We try to make it about us instead of about him. There's somebody, I can't remember who that guy is. He wanted to be just like the most high too. I remember it was Lucifer, the archangel. And the sinful state of humanity mirrors that original rebellion that was in the heart of Lucifer. 
Instead of seeing God for who he is, one who's made us in his image and likeness, we change the creator for the creation, like Romans 1 says, and what we end up doing is making God in our own image and likeness. And you hear it from people, they'll say stuff like this, well, if God sends people to hell, I don't want to believe in a God like that. And, and so what they do is they just try to flip the table. Well, guess what? If you come up with your own concept of God, he's no, he's no God at all. By definition, you, yeah, you become God and he becomes the creation. And so God says this, when he's speaking to Israel, he says this, he says, you thought I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. I'll make it real clear. I'm not like you at all. I'm altogether different. Isaiah 55, the the verse that we all kind of know, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, our God, he's fantastic, he's fascinating, he's wondrous and marvelous, and he's actually beyond our comprehension. And and what we try to do is we try to box him in and, and, and put him in a form that's palatable and fully understandable. We try to make him logical, and I would just tell you, as long as you can understand everything about God, he is no God. In fact, the scripture says the very same about God that his ways are unsearchable. You know, David said, he's great and greatly to be praised. His ways are past finding out. Greatly to be praised, what what David meant by that is, he's to be praised as greatly as we can offer. And it's what he was doing in his 24-7 worship at the tabernacle of David. He's greatly to be praised. His ways are past finding out. And so this was exactly Job's predicament. Now, mostly when we talk about Job, we get into this zone of thinking about like, okay, Job lost everything, and then at the end, he got restored everything. Like, we know the first and the last chapter of the book of Job, and we're like, that's what it was. He, he had everything, he lost everything, and then he got restored twice, glory to God. And we preach a message about some sort of double return or double anointing. And I would just tell you, that's not at all what the book of Job is about. So here's what happens. Job is a righteous man, the Bible says so, and the Lord actually points Job out to Satan. Put that in your theological pipe. Like, what? Did you just, yeah, the Lord points Job out to Satan. He says, you considered my servant Job. And why is he saying that? He's saying that because here's a righteous man who won't deny me even through struggle and suffering. And Satan opens fire on Job. He basically takes his whole life and destroys it until Job is sitting in sackcloth and ashes, covered in boils, and the only pleasure he gets are when dogs come and lick the boils. And that's a bad day. That's a bad day. 
lost his family, lost his belongings, lost his house. He's sitting there, and his, everything is on fire, and he's worshiping. And then we get Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they show up, and we get them for 30 chapters, going back and forth with Job. And here's what happens. Job's three friends basically say, this wouldn't have happened to you unless you were in sin. You're clearly reaping what you've sowed. And I would just tell you, how often have we been in the church, and the church is Job's three friends, and we don't even understand that God is the one that directs us into the suffering so he can be glorified when he takes us out of the suffering. And the church looks at people who are struggling and in difficulty, and they turn on them just like Job's three friends. You deserved it. Obviously, you're in sin or this wouldn't have happened. It's bad theology when you see that happening in the church. That's not truth. If that were true, that would mean that every North Korean brother and sister that we have that's in a prison camp right now because of the name of Jesus has done something to be in that place. Instead, it's God's choice to have them grow up in a place of suffering and persecution because he is going to, he is intending to reward them in a way that will blow our minds as they stay faithful through the trial. So 30 chapters until chapter 32, and this young, this young man shows up, Elihu. We don't even know that he's there. And here's what happens. Elihu is listening, he's, he's listening to this back and forth between Job and his three friends. Oh, by the way, in this conversation, Job is saying this. While his three friends are saying, you're in sin, and that's why this is happening, Job is saying, I am not in sin, I am righteous, and I will prove it to God. If he'll just show up, I'll tell him everything that he's done wrong. He actually says, I'll be delivered from my judge when I state my case before him. So here's Job justifying himself. Here's the three friends condemning him. And here's this young man, Elihu, who we don't even know is in the game. And he's sitting there listening to all of it. And he's like, Job speaks. He's like, man, you're wrong, Job. And then the three friends speak. And he's thinking, man, you're wrong, three friends. And then Job speaks. And he's like, man, Job, no, you're wrong. And then the three friends, man, you're, you're wrong. And so by Job 32, Elihu finally goes this. He goes, listen, I'm a young guy. I'm not supposed to be talking, but I'm sitting here, and I'm getting ticked. It's what he says. He goes, I'm, my, I'm burning within me. He goes, I'm like an unvented wine bottle. And he says, no one is declaring the right knowledge of God here. You're justifying yourself, Job. He says, you're darkening counsel with words without knowledge. The young guy, he goes, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm speaking up right now. And he says to the three friends, you guys are completely condemning Job, and you've missed the entire point. God is God, and God will do what God does, and glory to God no matter what comes our way. And so we get 32, 33, 34, 35, and 36. We get, and 37, we get six chapters of Elihu, and he's declaring the right knowledge of God. It's potent, man. It's really beautiful. And he's basically saying to them, you do not know who you're messing with here. You don't know God. You don't know who he is. You don't know what his ways are. 
He's saying you've all got to humble yourself and give yourself to God and allow him to make of you what he dreams and what he desires. And so we pick this up with Elihu in chapter 36. And Elihu says this, this statement has been a defining statement for my life. And it's a simple statement. In, in Job 36, 26, Elihu says this, behold, God is great and we do not know him. And then he just gives us a, a thought, nor can the number of his years be understood, or the number of his years are past finding out. Just think that through for a minute. We can figure out how old every single person is in this room. We can figure out how old every single person is who's ever lived within a year or two, even if they don't know their birthday. But God, you don't even know how old he is. In fact, watch this. I want you to think about 10 years ago, we're in 2018, think about 2008, you could probably lock in, figure out how old you were, 2008, 10 years, your memory goes there. Now, think about 1808, 200 years ago, you got some stuff in your mind about history books, kind of get a picture, carriages, horses, no cars. Let's go back to 08. Jesus is walking the earth. Kind of have the picture there. Let's go back 10,000 years. Well, I'm, I'm a new earth kind of guy. <laughs> 10,000 10, years, what, what do you mean? Oh, we're just getting started. You see, our brains, they can only scratch the surface on what even eternity is. Can you do 50,000 years? Can you do 100,000 years? We're not even in the millions. He's from everlasting. When you try to picture with your eyes closed 100,000 years ago, what happens? It just goes blank. Because God is great, and we do not know him, and the number of his years are past finding out. We can't even conceive of this one. We're so finite, we're so small, and he's so great. And we take the same position as Job so often where we step into this place of self-justification, imagining that we understand everything and imagining that somehow God is unjust or mistreating us. And how often do we judge God, justify ourselves? and completely miss his activity in our lives. And Elihu just says, listen, you don't have a clue who he is. God is great, and we do not know him. And then he says this in, in, in uh, chapter 37, verse 5, he does great things which we cannot comprehend. He goes, God does stuff that you will not be able to understand. You won't be able to understand it. it don't imagine you can. He's God, and you're not. I love what the psalmist said, our God does what he pleases. He does what he pleases, he's God. He's the only being that's completely free. 
Everybody else has boundaries and constraints. You can't jump as high as you like. You can't whatever, 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 right? God, no boundaries, no constraints. He's free. That's our God. So here's what ends up happening. And this is a a prophetic sign, but the young man, he preaches the right knowledge of God, and he begins to talk about how God thunders with his majestic voice, and how he commands where lightning to strike. And he he talks about how God comes from the north like a whirlwind covered in golden splendor. And what happens is this. The top of chapter 38, God shows up like a whirlwind in golden splendor. Elihu is preaching who God is, calling them to a right knowledge of God, saying God is unsearchable, unknowable, he's beyond comprehension, and he's like, a, he's like a whirlwind in golden splendor, and bang, the whirlwind shows up. The glory of God shows up, and God begins to speak to Job. Oh, hallelujah. Because when he speaks to Job, it's ugly. Here's what he says, Job 38, verse 1, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You know what's interesting? That's exactly what the young man said. God showed up and thundered behind the messenger. I'll tell you what, when you get a messenger speaking a word from the Lord, they'll say it and the Lord will show up behind it and thunder that word of the Lord. You've experienced it. You've, you've heard messages, and you, you go away in your time of prayer, and the, it's like the, the, the words that were spoken in the message are echoing in the back of your head. What's God doing? He's thundering what the messenger spoke. So here's, here's God. He shows up in a whirlwind, and he says, who is this? You darken counsel by words without knowledge. If in your list of things you never want God to say to you, put that one down. You never want God to say that to you. Later, he says, gird yourself like a man, and I will show you who I am. You put that down, too. That's, it's just, I mean, chapter 38 to chapter 42, you're just like, uh, oh, God, watch out, Job. I mean, just, it's just, God goes, you're going to tell me? He goes, I'll tell you what, let me tell you. And he shows up and magnificent glory. He goes, I will question you, and you will answer me. I just, I gotta, I just gotta read some of these phrases because they're so powerful. Job 38. He says, uh, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. What were the foundations fastened to? And who laid the cornerstone? He goes, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He's talking about creation. He's talking about the angels of God in creation singing the glories of God. He goes, tell me if you understand this, Job. Where's this one where he says, that calls forth the, the dawn. He goes, have you ever Yeah, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? 
And he just goes on and on and on. I mean, it's like they're arm wrestling, bang, bang, bang. He just, every single line. And so finally, Job goes, oh, I will be quiet. And when Job says he's going to be quiet, he goes, he says it like four times. He goes, I'll be quiet and I won't say a thing. And I won't talk anymore right after I finish talking right now because I'm going to stop talking now. I mean, it's just four verses to say I'm stopping. And then Job finally, after the Lord finishes, he just goes, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I put my hand to my mouth and my face to the dust. You are right and you are justified and I'm nothing. And then the Lord, he says, Job, I'll restore you. Three friends, you have to make sacrifices for your sin in declaring me wrongly. And Elihu is the one that never gets mentioned. But he's the one that shifted the entire thing. The one with the right knowledge of God. Beloved, it is critical for us in this hour to come to a right knowledge of God and to not fall into the same sins as Job and his three friends. Here's what we do in American Christianity. We memorize about 50 Bible verses. We know about 10 Bible stories. We can kick them back to you because we learned them you know, in, in, in Sunday school or something, and we can explain the story, but we have no idea who God is. Just because you know John 3.16 doesn't mean you know who God is. Just because you can quote 50 Bible verses doesn't mean you know who God is. And what we do is we make it synonymous with being saved. We'll actually even ask people, do you know the Lord? And here's where most of the church is right now. Most of the church has somehow met the Lord, but they do not know him. I remember I did a meeting in Houston. There was 30,000 people there, and the governor of, of Texas was on the stage, Rick Perry at the time, and, and, and he was a part of this meeting, and, and I was one of the speakers, and, and he came, and he shook my hand, and, and I just I remember meeting him, and he talked for a few minutes, and, and, and that was it. And after the meeting, all these political people, we were in the lobby, and they were running at me, throwing their cards at me, and giving me their numbers and everything. Why? Because they thought I knew the governor. It was the most disgusting display of human posturing. Felt like I needed to take a shower. They didn't understand that I didn't know him. I just met him. And I think so often the world wants to meet Christians that know God, and instead we just present who we are, and we don't know him. We've just met him. You and I get to go on a lifelong, eternal trip into the knowledge of God. But the key first step is we have to humble ourselves. Because if you imagine you know him, you imagine he fits in your little box, you imagine that you understand everything this Bible says, you are completely outside of your element. You're, you're completely arrogant. You don't know God. I don't care who the greatest theologian is among us. I don't care who the most prophetic person is among us. The Bible is absolutely clear. It says, in this age, we only see darkly through a glass. The most revelatory person, the, most, the person who knows God the most, 
only sees dimly through a dimly lit mirror. And that mirror that Paul is talking about was a piece of metal shined up as much as it could so you could see a reflection in it. It wasn't anything close to accurate. We have to come low. We can't get low enough. And our problem is we have an inflated view of ourselves and a deflated view of God, and we, we can't imagine that we're going to experience God if we just continue with such a high view of ourselves and a low view of him. We can't imagine he's going to come and habitate with us. So here's what I want to do. I want to tie this to who, what this whole encounter is that Job has and how it's applicable to us as relates to the end of the age because the New Testament writer James, he actually uses Job as an example for the church at the end of the age. So James 5, and we'll wrap up with this thought. James 5, verse 7 says this, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. I'll tie this together for you, and we'll close. So James is telling the church to be ready for the Lord's return. If this was a message that was important 2,000 years ago, how important is it to us right now? And so he says, this is like a farmer who perseverantly and patiently waits for the seed to produce a harvest, says the church has to be patient and perseverant because there is a harvest of the kingdom of God coming, but we have, to, we have to stay faithful through the process. If a farmer plants a crop, runs out there in a week and says, where's my crop, where's my crop? The crop didn't come. He's absolutely foolish because he knows there's going to be, there's a, a, a whole process of tilling the ground and getting rid of the weeds and making sure that thing is cultivated properly so a harvest can actually come. There's a ton of perseverant work all the way through until the harvest happens. And so James' point is this. The church has to persevere unto the coming of the Lord. It's going to be a a thing that requires patience. It's going to be something that causes the church to stand through suffering, which is what he actually says right there in the passage. What's interesting to me is, he says, you also be patient, establish your hearts, the coming of the Lord is at hand, and then the first thing he tells us to do, don't complain with one another. Don't complain and grumble against one another. I can't, aren't there worse sins? He goes, don't grumble and complain at one another. I'm going, don't you mean don't fornicate and, you know, do the bad ones? And James goes, I am talking about the bad one. 
Because the church at the end of the age is going to have to be united in love and in humility. The church at the end of the age is going to have to be so held together in the bond of the Spirit. The church is going to have to be one. He goes, stop complaining about each other. You're dividing yourselves among yourselves, and it's not God. Don't grumble against one another. This is a critical thing at the end of the age. People come to me, and they want to talk about this church or that church, and I just go, stop. Look, there's other guys out there that want to do that with their life. That's not me. If they love Jesus, I love them. We're on the same team. That's it. That's it. Period. Don't grumble against one another, brother, lest you be condemned, because the judge is at the door. Let me just ask you, if Jesus Christ were standing at the door in his judge garments, do you think you'd be talking about someone else in the church to the person sitting next to you? Oh, my goodness. But it's almost like sport now because we have the internet and everybody can talk about each other. I don't want any of that. I want none of that on my record. If they love Jesus, I love them. I am for them. If they love Jesus, they believe in the cross of Jesus, they believe in the blood of Jesus, man, we're on the same team. I want to fight for them. Somebody told me that, I just talked to uh, this, this leader recently, and they're coming to Atlanta to, to plan a house of prayer. And I said, hey, have you thought about planting it on Collins Hill Road, which is where our house of prayer is? She, and she goes, well, 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 no. I go, it'd be awesome to have two of them right there next to one another. <laughs> she goes, yeah, I don't think I'm going to plant it on Collins Hill. I go, well, okay, but I mean, I'd love it. It'd be awesome. Why? Because we're on the same stinking team. We're on the same team. I said, tell me what I can do to help you get your ministry off the ground. I would love to serve you. Then he says this, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endured. And then he says, you've heard of the suffering, or you've heard of the perseverance of Job. See, he's tying that together. The prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, and Job is the one that he mentions. He actually identifies Job as a prophet. That's what James is doing. Now, what's interesting about Job is we don't get anything that's like prophet-worthy hardly from Job. There's a few phrases here and there as he's explaining certain things. But in general, we don't get Job speaking a message, a prophetic message. Why? Because Job is the message. Job is the message. Job is what the Lord was trying to say. And what the Lord's trying to say to the church at the end of the age is, you don't know me the way you think you do. You've got to humble yourself and go deep into who I am so that you can be patient and perseverant and endure through suffering all the way into the end. Because if you've got a conception of me that's different than who I am, you will give up hope when things get difficult. Job is the message. And so when we understand that, that we're supposed to humble ourselves instead of justifying ourselves, and that when things don't go our way, we're not supposed to blame God and judge God. We're supposed to actually present ourselves before God and say, God, do with me as you will. I am yours. You bought me. I'm yours. Have your way in my life. 
and then allow the Lord to make of us whatever it is he's intended. And then James tells us that the end that God intended for Job was very compassionate, very merciful. Do, do you see it? The, the Lord wanted to in, express himself to Job in mercy and in compassion. And he wanted to get Job to understand who he really was and to see him as he was instead of the low conception that Job had of God. Job is the message. And the message is this, our God is great, and we do not know him, beloved. And so we're talking about pursued and encountered. We're talking about how God wants to have intimacy with us. But I would just propose to you this. There's a shallow end of the pool where we can live, where you got our, we got our 50 verses that we understand. We do our you know, church checklist. Or there's a deep end of the pool that has no bottom. It's the depths of the knowledge of God. And he's infinite. He's eternal. He's all wonder. He's all marvel. He's all beauty. He's all glory. He's all love. He's all greatness. He's all fire. And you can't exhaust him. You can't wear him out. Because if we'll go deep into the knowledge of him, we will begin to find him, we'll find the knowledge of God. And beloved, that's what your heart was made for. You weren't made to thrill in every natural thing that you can see and be entertained by. You were made to thrill in the one who's transcendent, the one who's glory itself. And so what's my word to us? My word to us is this. Let's stare at God until we see him as he is. And then when we see him as he is, let's stare at him some more so that the knowledge of who he is begins to transform us, begins to change the way we think and the way we act, change how we interact with one another. I'll tell you what, when I begin to understand that God loved me, that he really, really loved me, it became easy for me to love people, especially the ones that are hard to love. You know why? Because I'm hard to love. I've got brokenness and issues, and God likes me so much. I'm so confident in how much he likes me, it enables me to love people who are just as broken as me. I only got that through looking at him, not through someone else's testimony, not through what someone else says about him, only through looking at who he is and what the scripture says about him, the way he thinks and feels, and allowing that to transform my mind and my heart. And beloved, that's where we have to be right now, going deep into the knowledge of God and fasting and prayer in the word and allowing the knowledge of who he is to, to transform us. Amen and amen. Let's all stand to our feet.